0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening 100 years ago, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is August 30, 2017, and our guests this week are Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Dr. Leander Russ McDonald, president of the United Tribes Technical College, Joel Mize, from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Sheffield, Alabama, and Chris Connolly from Dayton, Ohio, who submitted a Stories of Service post, and we want to talk about that. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Tao Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Before we start today, we wanted to take a moment for the people of Texas struggling with the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Here is Dan Dayton, the executive director of the World War I Centennial Commission. A hundred years ago, the nation came together to support the Great War effort. It really was an all-hands effort. But right now, this week, the need in Texas is critical. When people are in need, Americans help. They did it a century ago, and we can do it again. It's who we are. Let's put that all hands effort to work to lend Texas a hand today. Visit RedCross.org or the United Way or the Salvation Army. And thanks for doing your bit. There are several links for donating to the relief effort in the podcast notes. It really was a world war. In part, what made World War I so immediately global was the imperial mindset of the times. Everyone thought in terms of empires, global and regional conquest, possessions, colonies, holdings, opportunities, and international allies, and brought all of that baggage into the fray. <laughs> We've gone back in time 100 years to explore the war that changed the world. It's August 1917, and on the 14th of August, China declares war on Germany. So that got us thinking here at World War I Centennial News about an Asian-focused segment, and this is it. Quick quiz. Okay, China declares war on Germany, but is Japan in the war? And what side are they on? That's right. In World War I, Japan is also on the side of the Allies. This week, 100 years ago, a Japanese delegation comes to America, headed by Viscount Ishii, the former Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Empire of Japan. This prompts a number of articles in the official bulletin, America's War Gazette, created by the Order of the President, and published daily by George Creel, America's Propaganda Chief. Dateline, Monday, August 27, 1917. Headline, Japanese mission pays homage to George Washington. Quote, he belongs to all mankind, declares Viscount Ishii. As the diplomat placed a wreath on the tomb of America's first president, he declares, In the name of my gracious sovereign, the Emperor of Japan, and in representing all of the liberty-loving people who own his sway. I stand today in the sacred presence, not to eulogize the name of Washington, for that were presumption, but to offer a simple tribute of a people's reverence and love. The day's events began with a speech by Secretary of the Navy Daniels, who recalled the visit to Japan by Admiral Perry a half a century earlier and couches it not as gunboat diplomacy, but as the beginning of a friendship between the nations. Later, Secretary and Mrs. Daniels host the Japanese mission at Mount Vernon. The story goes on to list the guests who attend, including 20 Japanese dignitaries and 60 odd American Navy diplomatic and political invited guests. Near the end of the week, Viscount Ishii is invited to address a special session of the U.S. Senate. Dateline, Friday, August 31, 1917. Headline, Viscount Ishii tells Senate, quote, Japan took up arms against Germany because our solemn treaty with Britain was not to us just a scrap of paper. Viscount Ishii's speech included, To us, the fact that you, the United States, are now on the side of the Allies in this titanic struggle constitutes already a great moral victory for our common cause, which we believe to be the cause of right and justice, for the strong as for the weak, for the great as for the small. We of Japan believe we understand something of the American ideal of life, and we pay our most profound respect to it. Jefferson Your great democratic president conceived the ideal of an American commonwealth to be not a rule imposed on the people by force of arms, but as a free expression of the individual sentiments of that people. Jefferson saw Americans as a myriad of independent and free men, as individuals only relying on a combined military force for the protection against aggression from abroad or treachery from within. In fact... The treaty he refers to means the Japanese and the Brits have been besties since the signing in 1902. So, on August 23, 1914, 103 years ago, and this is less than a month after the war breaks out in Europe, Japan formally declares war on Germany and Austria-Hungary. And here's the deal they made. Even in 1914, the Japanese Imperial Navy is no slouch. So they agree to protect England and France's interests in the Asia-Pacific region, and in return, Japan gets to snag all the German territories in Asia as well as the German Pacific islands. So the first thing that Japan does, even before they declare war, is to target a big German colony port in China, Tsingtao. Yeah, there's a connection. German beer, German breweries, German-Chinese territories, and today's great Chinese beer brand, Gangbai. Next, as per the agreement, Japan goes after the German colonies in the Pacific, making short work out of capturing the Mariana, Caroline, and Marshall Islands. This kind of freaks out the Allies, including the United States, although we aren't at war yet. This imperial Japanese navy's performing just a little too well for our comfort. It just isn't natural in the Western cultural thinking of the time, with its deep-seated bigotry and ignorance, to believe that an Asian navy might be world-class. But it is. Their support extends to Europe. By 1917, the ongoing slaughter on the Western Front means that a constant stream of reinforcements is needed. If the Mediterranean route is squeezed shut by U-boats, the French and the British Empire troops would need to go all the way around the southern tip of Africa. So the Japanese Imperial Navy sends a fleet to the Mediterranean to help with escort duties. Based in Malta, they protect Allied shipping between Marseille, France, Toronto, Italy, and Egyptian ports by the end of the war. Japan's 2nd Special Squadron has escorted 788 ships across the Mediterranean, safely transporting more than 700,000 troops to the Western Front. Reportedly, several Japanese commanders commit harikiri after the ships under their protection are lost. They do have a powerful sense of duty. So, by 100 years ago this month, on August 14, 1917, three years after Japan, China declares war on Germany. How come? Well, China declares itself neutral at the outset of the war, but also wants to show solidarity with the Allies. So unable to send men to fight, they send men to help. By the end of the war, Chinese workers rank as the largest and longest-serving non-European contingent in World War I. There are complex politics surrounding their role and the Chinese labor force, but perhaps most important, as China sees America entering the fray, China wants to earn itself a place at the post-war bargaining table. Top of the list for China is to regain control over the vital Chantung Peninsula, that pokey little part in the Yellow Sea across from Korea that Japan grabbed at the start of the war, you know, where Tsingtao is located. China wants to reassert its strength over Japan, which is its big, aggressive adversary and rival in the region. At the Versailles Peace Conference, following the armistice, the Allied Supreme Council, dominated by the United States, France, and Britain, are divvying up the world. Japan and China are both there, lobbying hard about their respective claims to the Shantung Peninsula. Meanwhile, Japan introduces another idea into the mix. They propose racial equality language to be included in the League of Nations Charter. Their proposed language reads, The equality of nations being a basic principle of the League of Nations the high contracting parties agree to accord, as soon as possible, to all alien nationals of states and members of the National League equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinctions either in law or in fact on account of their race or nationality. A bargain is eventually struck with Japan, but not really to their liking. They go home pretty angry and humiliated. The racial equality clause is shut down. But in compensation, they get to keep some German submarines and the Shantung Peninsula. Some historians note that both sides see one another as unacceptably arrogant and bigoted. It's also worth noting that the next time we see Japan at war, it will not be as an ally. And that's a quick overview of some of what happened in Asia 100 years ago in the war that changed the world. We have a whole bunch of references and links in the podcast notes. Next, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Today, Mike's post takes us to the Aegean Sea and the port town of Salonika, an allied stronghold in Greece, across the sea from Turkey. On August 27th, 100 years ago this week, a major event strikes the city. Welcome,
1: Mike. Thank you, Tayo. And that's right. The headline reads, idyllic Greek city consumed by fire. The terrible tragedy of Salonika, more useless fighting in the Alps, and a singer loses his voice. This is special to the Great War Project. A true disaster hit the Salonika front, now Thessaloniki in Greece, in these days 100 years ago. A disastrous fire breaks out on August 18th, cause unclear. Italian troops there joined Allied troops stationed there to try to put it out. But that proved beyond the capacity of the troops turned firefighters. Nearly half the city was burned down, reports historian Martin Gilbert, and 80,000 people were made homeless. The British base headquarters were destroyed, as were almost all the stocks of quinine needed to fight the scourge of the Salonika front, the malarial mosquito. A munitions store filled with grenades had also blown up. Salonika held many pleasures for the Allied troops passing through, reports one historian. It was still possible to enjoy the natural beauty of the Gulf and to find some peace in the hills beyond the town. But there were many high spirits who looked for something noisier. That had gone up in smoke. For the rest of the campaign reports, Gilbert, Salonica remained a desolate place. Almost half the city burned down, writes one witness. It will take the best part of two weeks to put the fire out, and the city will remain a sooty ruin for the rest of the war. The Salonica that existed before the war will never be rebuilt. The Salonica explosion coincided with the opening of another Italian offensive in the Balkan mountains, fought over by the Italians and the Austrians, and again, after several offensives in the Alps, it looked like the Italians held the upper hand. Since the launching of their new attack, reports Gilbert, the Italians had captured five mountain peaks and taken more than 20,000 Austrians and some Germans prisoner brought into British nurse Helen Dabernon's casualty clearing station was a tenor from the Hanover Opera House. She writes, his poor face was concealed by a sanguinary mass of bandages. It was only possible to give nourishment by means of an India rubber tube passed underneath. It seemed as though gangrene has already set in, yet he wrote down an anxious inquiry as to whether we thought he would be able to sing again. Around the same time, she writes in her diary, the stream of sick and wounded had swollen to a flood. At this moment, a century ago, some 4,000 Austrians had passed through on their way to being interned behind barbed wire. But she writes, they seemed in good spirits and were laughing and singing in snatches. Internment, a serious deprivation of liberty and peacetime, meant life in wartime. And that's the story from the Great War Project this week, a century ago.
0: Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. For videos about World War I, visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. They have well over 400 episodes about World War I covering the conflict since 2014, and from a more European perspective. This week's new episodes include the Second Battle of Verdun, and another one, inside a British Mark IV World War I tank, and inside a British Bristol Scout World War I airplane. Both of these last two episodes are from the Great War Channel's recent trip to England. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War One Centennial News Now. And this part of the program is not about history, but about how the centennial of the war that changed the world is being commemorated today. I'd like to start by spending a little time on the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register. One of the tasks of the commission is to record and archive what America is doing to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. So we built a U.S. National Events Register for that purpose. You'll find it at ww one ccorg slash events, all lowercase. Then we created two programs to feed it. One is a big red button that anyone can click and submit their event to the National Register. That does two things. First, it gets your event listed in the National Register, and then it puts your event into the permanent National Archive for what transpired during the U.S. World War I centennial. This is a permanent archive that will live on long after the centennial itself passes. In theory, when the U.S. prepares the bicentennial after another century, your commemorative idea and event will be part of that record for the 2117 team for reference. The second program we created is for state centennial organizations, museums, libraries, universities, and others that are holding a number of World War I-themed centennial events over the period. If you're one of those organizations, we have a special publishing partner program where we'll train you and give you login access to the register so you can post World War I events directly into it. If you'd like to avail yourself of that program, go to Contact in the menu on any page of our website at ww one ccorg and send us a request. And perhaps most important of all, for those of you who are just wondering what World War I-themed events are happening in your area, currently, I counted around 70 ongoing and 45 to 50 single-day events. That's around 115 different events going on around the country on almost any day. And we think that's only a fraction of what's actually going on. So pass the word. If you're doing World War I-related events, big or small, get them into the register and let our community of interest and history know what you're doing to commemorate the centennial of World War I. The link to the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register is in the podcast notes. This week in our updates from the states section, we want to highlight a very special gathering in North Dakota. On September 10th, during the final day of the 48th annual United Tribes Technical College International Powwow, an annual gathering of some five to 10,000 individuals, they're going to focus on Native Americans and World War One. Susan Meningay from the Pritzker Military Museum and Library and World War One Centennial Commissioner Terry Hamby will be on hand for the ceremony. We have with us today Dr. Leander Russ MacDonald, United Tribes Technical College president. Welcome, Russ. Hi. Russ, the Native American role in World War I was profound, both in terms of Indian nations independently declaring war on Germany as sovereign nations and Native Americans volunteering as soldiers. Could you give our audience an overview?
2: You know, I've been thinking about this for a while, and in regard to the honoring that's happening here on on Sunday, and as I think about this, I think about the cultural context of the tribes at the time. They were relatively new to reservations, possibly only one generation or so. The men are considered the providers and protectors of our communities, of our camps. And so really what happened here in regard to World War I and the enlistment of, a, of American Indians into the services at higher proportions than any other race in a nation at the time when they were not yet citizens of this country, I think was really a carryover of, of our culture perspective in regard to protecting our camps. And so in their view, I believe that they seen this as a protection of our homelands because the United States was really American Indian lands prior to European expansion. And so, as a result of that, they turned out in higher proportions to to serve the country.
0: Russ, what do you think the most profound effect of World War One on the Native American community was?
2: I think that culture perspective was the most profound effect, in that they were able to come out and still continue their role as men and as, as protectors and providers for their tribes and to serve the country. In, in this respect, I think as as we continue to move ahead, not only within World War One, but in uh, services past that point, we still hold that title today because both our men and women, they have higher enlistment and veterans rates of any other race in the nation.
0: So on September 10th, during the 48th annual UTTC International Powwow, there was a remembrance and honoring of Native American World War I warriors. Can you tell us about that, please?
2: For most tribal nations, it is an honoring. And so we're honoring those that are no longer here in this case. And from what we understand is that visiting with the tribes out there that are being represented here, uh, mainly the five tribes here within the state of North Dakota, is there was honorings that were done at the community level, but nobody really recognized their contributions to the war effort overall. And so I think this is so important for these families whose relatives who, who served at the time. And we were just getting tremendous amount of interest from those families to come here. And they're coming. There's one family that's going to feed the whole camp in regard to the uh, any veterans that have served. There's others that are bringing uh, donations to, to give away to recognize the honoring that's been held on their relative's behalf. And this is a cultural piece in regard to those that have served. American Indian tribes throughout the nation hold their veterans in high regard. And as a result of that, this is so important to our people. There's been some talk about putting uh, additional memorial up We have an existing memorial that recognizes all service to American Indians, and and we're looking at adding another one to recognize those that served in World War
0: I. There's actually quite a bit of interest from various state organizations and the centennial community and our listeners about the Native American participation in World War I. How can people learn more? What are some of the resources they might access?
2: I believe our website, uh, www.uttc.edu, has a lot of information in regard to what's been put together and what's happening here. Uh, Dennis Newman is our director of the Office of Public Information, and he's done a great job of uh, working with the authors of a book. Michael and Ann Knuthen from here in uh, Bismarck area uh, put together a book called Wires and Khaki, Native American Dole from North Dakota. And what they did there is they, they created a list and went around to these different tribal communities and gathered up some stories of, uh, from those who have served and uh, and they were able to publish that and put that information out. And so, in their contact with Dennis, uh, they really helped to really build uh, what's happening here. Uh, they had an initial list, and from Dennis's work and revisiting those communities and working with their veteran service officers, they were able to refine that list a bit bit more. And so, they were able to ship those over and help uh, help to get a better list together. And I think that's really uh, helped to not only uh, Determine who served in World War I and the amount of people that served, uh, from the tribes here in North Dakota. But I also have those stories, uh, and one such story is, uh, Joseph Sherman, who's from the Spirit Lake Nation for, from where I'm from. And, uh, Joseph, and I'm going to read here from the book, and it says, Joseph Sherman was the first man from North Dakota's Indian country to die in the war. His name is included on a memorial to American MIAs at, uh, Shrestness American Cemetery and Memorial near Paris, France. So he was uh, considered MIA, but he's really uh, killed in action and became a KIA afterwards. His ship was uh, torpedoed, and as a result of that, he and others died within that conflict.
0: Is the book out already?
2: Yes, it's been out, and it was actually published in 2012. And I think the authors are now building another book for South Dakota. And so they're working with the tribes in South Dakota in order to get that down in record.
0: Russ, thank you for taking the time to join us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. We're really glad to be able to share this important information in regard to the honoring, just uh, of interest in regard to what's happening from those family members, from the veteran services officers, the VFWs, the different veterans organizations that are coming to our campus in order to honor these servicemen.
0: That was Dr. Leander Russ McDonald, United Tribe Technical College president and the host for the 48th annual UTTC International Pow Wow. There are links to the event in the podcast notes. And now for our Speaking World War I feature, where we explore today's words and phrases that were rooted in the war. This week's phrase is Field Day. Today, one might say that Hollywood Press had a field day when rumors broke out that Angelina and Brad broke up. The way it's used now, the phrase to have a field day means an opportunity for action, success, or excitement. But the phrase originates from the military. It was used in a literal sense, for a day spent in the field doing maneuvers, exercises, and drills. This was particularly true during World War One, when a lot of men got a lot of training exercises. A Marine Corps barracks might have sounded like this. All right, gentlemen, grab your packs, your rifles, and your sorry butts. Today we are having a field day, starting with a four-mile run, Move out, you maggots! Field day. A big event, now and then. The earliest references go back all the way to 1747. See the podcast notes for more. Next, we're going to profile another 100 Cities 100 Memorials project. That's our $200,000 matching grant giveaway to rescue ailing World War I memorials. Last week, we profiled a brand-new memorial going up in Fort Towson, Oklahoma, complete with a new commissioned Doughboy statue. This week, we head to Sheffield, Alabama, for a project that honors those who died in the northwest region of Alabama known as Muscle Shoals. Joining us is Joel Mize, Steering Committee Chairman for the 101 Memorial Project. Welcome, Joel. Thank you, Tao. Joel, your project honors 101 individuals who died as a result of World War I, but not on the battlefields of Europe. Instead, serving the nation as civilian defense workers in a manufacturing plant. Would you share their story with us, please?
3: Uh, yes, I will. The story here is one that had been largely put in the background because of the passage of time and as part of our efforts to uh, recognize the 101 who died in the Nitrate Number 2 plant hospital during World War I, mostly of the flu pandemic, but a few others from industrial accidents, we get some sense of the magnitude of the total effort that went on here. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson and Congress both determined that this was an ideal location to build nitrate plants because of the distance from German submarine threats and the great nearby hydropower resource potential. So at the time the project was approved, which was mid-year of uh, 1917, it became a critical and national priority with a lot of expertise put on the project so that what might otherwise take 10 years to do in today's society was done within a year, a military command and control uh, type execution of the project. The principal purpose was to uh, make ammonium nitrate, which was an explosive. It also has an alternate peacetime use for fertilizer. The project was a precursor, a forerunner, if you will, of the World War II size projects, as I would compare to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and even the Manhattan Project, it was a gigantic undertaking. Some 80,000 to 100,000 workers were brought into the Muscle Shoals area to complete this work with the maximum crew size at any one time being about 20 to 25,000 people. Uh, these were successive uh, waves of craftsmen, if you will, coming in to do the various phases of the project. And uh, as this project was being undertaken, The war was going on, but also the flu pandemic descended on the country and the world for that matter, uh, particularly in the last half of 1918. Here locally some 5,000 workers died, probably about 600 actually died that were assigned to these projects, the two nitrate projects and the construction of the Wilson Dam for making hydropower. Uh, it, by the way, was the largest power plant in the world at that time from hydropower, surpassing the Aswan Dam that the British had built in Egypt on the Nile. The 101 individuals that we are now honoring were buried in unmarked graves, actually in the pauper section of the Sheffield Oakwood Cemetery. These were largely individuals whose family either couldn't afford the transportation to send them back to their point of origin, or they weren't able to locate the families. In the process of honoring and identifying our World War I monuments, discovered the names of this 101 in a sketch that was made in 1921, some three years after most of these people had died but it had been lying fallow in the archives. So our project was one of discovery, of finding out what the sketch pertained to, finding the location to which it could be identified, because all of that connection had been lost in the intervening years. Thus, from this large World War I endeavor, uh, we have chosen to focus on the 101 that died in the hospital during this period of the last half of 1918. And it indeed is a major legacy that arose from the World War I efforts here.
0: In putting this project together, what do you think is the most memorable thing that happened to you and your team?
3: I would say the effort here was a, a very large magnitude effort. And understanding the scope of that effort Uh, was an important uh, recognition that the members of the team came to as we worked through the details of the project. We had part of the project operated by the U.S. Army Ordnance Corps, and the dam part of the project was uh, overseen and implemented by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, With those two entities, again, we got great documentation. We also gained an appreciation for the magnitude of the flu pandemic Uh, which actually overshadowed uh, battlefield loss casualties in terms of number count. It's estimated that some 60 to 80 million people died around the world from that flu pandemic. And here in the US, some 650,000 civilians died from that flu pandemic. And that can be contrasted with a little over 100,000 military deaths during World War I, with maybe a sizable percentage of that being also from the flu pandemic. So the the great recognition that we have of the size and scope of the undertaking as well as the importance of the flu pandemic were really the big recognitions that we take away from the effort that we've done here.
0: Well, Joel, that's pretty amazing. I think there's probably a book or a website in all of this.
3: Well, we haven't gotten to a website yet. We've been kind of inundated with the work that we are doing. There was a book published in 1920 with a reprint in 1925 and our local um, Tennessee Valley Historical Society is doing a reprint uh, on that book that will give a very good history with a lot of photo illustrations of the major building of both the nitrate plants and the Wilson dam and so uh, uh, hopefully that will be something of value that we'll carry forward. We've also put together a, a DVD with some 700 photo images from the World War One period that we're also capturing and making available for the general public. So uh, we've been doing a lot of learning as a society. We've been making the rounds with all the civic groups and making sure that the citizenry are kind of up to speed on some of the s- discoveries that have been made. And we're having a successive uh, number of honorings at the gravesite of the 101. We have a ceremony planned for November the 12th. That's the day after. Armistice Day. We've involved the Sons of the American Revolution in that particular honoring and our major dedication to the monument that we expect to install there will be planned for next Memorial Day of, uh, of 2018. Thank you, Joel. Good. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, sharing the story of mussel Shoals and the service to the nation that was done here.
0: That was Joel Mize, Steering Committee Chairman for the 101 Memorial Project in Sheffield, Alabama. We're going to continue to profile the submitting teams and their unique and amazing projects on the show over the coming months. Learn more about the 100 Cities 100 Memorials program at www.w1cc.org 100memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes. In our Remembering the Veterans section, today we wanted to feature one of the many stories of service collected on our website at ww one ccorg stories, where you're invited to tell us about the World War I stories of service from your family, or just a story you may have uncovered. With us today is Chris Connolly from Dayton, Ohio, who submitted the story of service of his grandfather, Peter Alphonse Connolly, who served with the United States Marine Corps 5th Regiment. Peter was drafted into the Marine Corps, becoming a rifle expert during training before deploying to France in February of 1918. He returned home with a Croix de Guerre for his bravery in battle. Interestingly, Peter was an avid photographer and returned home with not only medals, but also a lot of wonderful photos. Welcome to the show, Chris.
4: Hi, great to have me on.
0: Chris, we have a story in the podcast notes about Peter Connolly and the story of service you submitted about him, but I wanted to learn a little more about how you went around putting the story together. Where did you find the material?
4: Actually, it's from a collection of oral stories and also the Marine Corps muster rolls. I've uh, done some research, got a lot of great information from the muster rolls, and also actually the Centennial Commission website itself. I'm a Boy Scout Scoutmaster a troop in Dayton here. And one of our service projects is uh, the World War One monument here in Dayton. In doing research, I came across the website and found some great information from it.
0: Chris, a lot of our listeners may never have heard of the muster roll. What is it? Where can they find it?
4: It's an online resource that I've come across, and it has just all of the uh, documentation from World War One of uh, wherever the Marines were. At certain points in time, they would just do a muster roll and document uh, what the Marine. Uh, was doing at that point in time. And I believe I just Google searched it, and it's one of the resources. There's a number of pay-for websites that can link you to the muster rolls, and also there's some other free ones.
0: Great resource. So, Chris, what's the most memorable thing for you in putting this together?
4: I think it's really the uh, the photo album. Kind It captures both the humanity of the soldiers when they're you know goofing off with each other. There's photos of uh, soldiers and their families in it. But it also captures you know, beautiful images of postcards from across Germany when my grandfather was in the Army of Occupation. It also captures kind of the brutality of the war. There's a number of photos of battle scenes with all the death and destruction uh, that are contained within. So it's, it's really hard not to view that that uh, the photo album and just get a, a really different understanding of kind of the experience of a frontline foot soldier and and what they encountered.
0: Have you shared your findings about Peter with the rest of your family? How did they respond?
4: I have. It's uh, it's been really an eye opener to a lot of a lot of my family members. Uh, they're really pleased to learn the the history that I've I've uncovered. It really fills in a lot of the oral history that was passed down from my parents and aunts and uncles and my grandmother. And that also helps explain some of the family traits that you know I, I have in some of my my cousins and brothers and sisters have that kind of can be linked to to our grandfather.
0: Chris, what advice would you give to others wanting to investigate their own family connections to World War I?
4: I would say there's a lot of great resources. Start online and just use the search engine. And uh, there's a lot of service-specific information out there. So if you can find out what service your family member was in, just try to search on, on links uh, for that service. And then, um, you know, just the uh, Centennial Commission website is a great resource in itself. Thank you, Chris. You bet.
0: That was Chris Connolly, who submitted a story of service about his grandfather, U.S. Marine Corps World War I veteran Peter Alphonse Connolly. For those of you interested in your ancestors who served, we have some exciting news. We're linking up with the Role of Honor Foundation, a nonprofit charity With the mission of honoring the military service of the men and women of America's armed forces, educating the public about their legacy, and encouraging public service among the next generation, we're right in the middle of integrating our stories of service and their database of World War I veterans. When we're done, your stories of service will be added to the Roll of Honor profile and you'll also be able to purchase a tribute wreath for your veteran on their profile, which will go directly to funding the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., honoring all of our World War I veterans. We'll have more details for you on this over the coming weeks. The links to Peter Connolly's story, the stories of service, and the role of honor are all in our podcast notes. This week in our Articles and Posts segment, we're going to highlight two stories from our website at www.w1cc.org news. The first is about a famed skill of the Doughboys. They were crack shots. As America entered World War I in 1917, a who's who of the National Rifle Association rifle champions gathered at Camp Perry, Ohio for an important mission, training snipers. These NRA sharpshooters organized a national-level advanced shooting program, the Small Arms Firing School, where specially selected soldiers would learn advanced marksmanship, culminating in long-range shooting and sniper training. Afterwards, the graduates rejoined their units, bringing their new skills with them and training others. Read the whole story about how this public-private partnership for military marksmanship contributed to the American war effort by following the link in the podcast notes. And finally, in articles and posts, we have a story about one of the commission's former interns, Tanvir Kahlo, who is still doing great work on World War I. Tanvir was also profiled in the May 16, 2017 issue of the World War I Dispatch Newsletter, our sister publication at ww one ccorg dispatch for his intern work and support in creating our Vande Mataram website about a forgotten group of World War I veterans from America's Asian Indian community. See the link in the podcast notes. Having become somewhat of an expert on the subject, Tanvir was recently invited to write an article on the same subject for American Bazaar Magazine, which was just published. Tanvir talks about the process and discoveries of his work and how he's continuing his research, even after returning to college. In the article, he highlights his personal favorite story of Manganlal Pandit, who served the U.S. military in both world wars. Check out Tanveer's great article at the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I This Week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us this week?
1: Thanks, Teo. This week, I wanted to close us out with a song. We shared the World War One 100th Anniversary Mobile Museum with listeners on a previous show, episode number 26. This week, the museum shared a beautiful video on Facebook. One of the great benefits of the museum being mobile is that it allows for so many people from all around the country to share their stories with the museum, and therefore, those stories get amplified. This video features a woman who regularly visits the museum when it's in her town. Her father fought in the war, and her mother used to sing this tune to her as she grew up. She shared it with the museum, who shared it on Facebook, and now we're honored to share it with you too. There's
0: a million mothers knocking, knocking at the nation's door. There's a million and yes, there'll be millions more. And deep within each mother's heart, she said, Let's hear what one brave mother has to say.
2: America,
0: I raised a boy for you. America, you'll find him staunch and true. Place a gun up on his shoulder. He is ready to die or do. America, he is my only one. My hope, my pride, and joy. But if I had another, he'd march beside his brother. America, here's my boy. <laughs> thank you for bringing that to us, Catherine. And that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, from the Great War Project blog, filling us in on the fire in Salonika. Dr. Leander Russ McDonald, president of the United Tribes Technical College, speaking with us about their upcoming commemorative event. Joel Mize from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Sheffield, Alabama. Chris Connolly from Dayton, Ohio, sharing Peter Connolly's story of service. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This program's a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country— and of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org/cn, on iTunes and Google Play at ww one News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at ww1cc. And we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world. <laughs>
1: His brother, my
0: boy. All right, gentlemen, grab your mops, sponges, toothbrushes, and meet me in the latrine. It's time for a bathroom field day. White glove inspection at 1700 Sharp.